All right. Thank you, brethren. Let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. We want to continue our thoughts as we wish again the mothers a happy Mother's Day. Thank you for, brother, your sharing from your heart. And brother Ramsey and I have talked about Cana in Galilee, where they're, where they're from. And I've been to his home city there. And of course, that's where the first sign of our Lord's public ministry was done. And there are beautiful hills there in the hills of Galilee. So uh, we thank you, brother. That was, that was a great testimony to what the Lord wants to do. You know, we've been looking here at the idea of our Lord Jesus Christ as our great high priest. And for many of us, the idea of priesthood may be something we don't really understand, or we may even have kind of false or wrong ideas about priesthood ourselves. Don't let the flies bother you. Satan won't do anything to distract us from his word, from the Lord's word. And I, I, I want to reinforce the idea that we brought up on Tuesday night that priesthood is God's idea. God thought of it. Now, obviously, everything God thinks of, especially the things that Satan knows are going to be really beneficial to us as people, Satan is going to imitate it with something false. And in the history of humankind, we've seen in civilizations over and over again this idea of human priesthood, a human intermediary between God and man. And of course, many of the false religions rely on this human priesthood that becomes a mediator between man and God. But as I say, priesthood is God's idea. He thought of it first. And His priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one that we proclaim here, don't we? In our own hearts, individually, corporately. And one of the great themes, perhaps the greatest theme of this book of Hebrews we've been looking at is this idea that you have, you who are believers in Jesus Christ, we have such a high priest. And beloved, we need him. We need him. So we begin our reading here now in chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness." Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So he's developing the thought. You remember he introduced the idea of our Lord's role as high priest at the end of chapter 2. 
In verses 17 and 18. Let's look at those. 17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Now, the whole idea the writer of Hebrews is to communicate and to build up the people of God with truth that will enable us to make it through, to continue, to persevere. We began the Christian life by faith. He tells us in chapter 11, verse 6, without faith it's impossible to please God. Because he who believes must believe that that He is the one that is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And so we have to come to God by faith. We don't demand sight from God. We don't demand miracles from God. We pray for miracles sometimes, but we don't demand them from God. We don't need them to hold up our faith because we live by faith and not by sight and we recognize without faith it's impossible to please God. There isn't anything we can do to please Him if we're not doing it by faith. James will go so far as to say that anything that we do apart from faith is sin. So we're to live by faith. And part of that faith is understanding that God has made provisions for us to complete our life journey. As His people. We're still here. Everything has been done that needs to be done for us to be glorified. But we haven't been glorified yet. Amen? We know we're certain that that's coming. But in the meantime, He has a work for us to do. And that's down here. On a sinful planet. That's operated by a world system with Satan, the prince of the power of the air, in charge, that is opposed to God at every step, and opposed to Jesus Christ. And then, we, as we've talked about, we also have an enemy within the gates, the Trojan horse within the gates. We've got the flesh, our old nature. Now, God could have taken that away the moment we were saved, couldn't He? But He doesn't. He leaves it there, but then He provides certain helps to enable us. He provides the Holy Spirit. His Spirit working within us. He talks about that in chapter 3. We already looked at that. He provides the Word of God. The Bible. You know how precious that is? You know how in some parts of the world people would give anything to have one page from your Bible? And he tells us in chapter 4, Verse 12 and 13, For the Word of God, your Bible, is alive. Did you know that? The Word of God is living and powerful. And it can do certain things to us, within us. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Like a scalpel that our brother uses in, in his work, in his occupation. Cutting, dividing between the joints and the marrow. That's a very fine division 
in the human body, in a human idea, but he's, he's trying to teach a spiritual truth, isn't he? The two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's a wonderful truth. That's a wonderful asset for us to have as Christians, our Word of God. And that's why we seek to have a quiet time or a devotional time every day, if we can, work it in our schedule. And when we come to the Word of God, we come prayerfully and we come expectantly. We expect it. If it is sharper than a two-edged sword, it's going to do something to us. We're not going to, every time we come to the Word of God, we should expect that when we walk away from it, we're going to be different than when we came. In some way, it may be just small, some small incremental way, but we're going to be different. Why? Because it's alive. It's unlike any other book, unlike any other human literature, anything else you could pick up. No commentary is alive like this. No Bible encyclopedia is alive like this. No concordance is alive like this. This is the living Word of God. Now, the soul and the spirit are part of our immaterial being. You know, you have your material being, your body, and then you have the immaterial being. And it is consists of soul and spirit. The soul, your essential personality, the spirit by which you have contact with God. Remember the, the uh, communist doctor years ago cut into the, he cut into the body and he... And he looked all over and he said, I didn't find a soul and a spirit, so therefore we don't have one. Well, it, we understand it's immaterial, so you're not going to find it. But those of us who have, have really any sense, I think, of life, we know that there's a soul and a spirit within us. And the unbeliever knows that too. And the Word of God acts in those areas of us that nothing else can. Deep within, separating soul and spirit, nothing else can do that, beloved. You see what an asset, what a provision it is of God. And then he says in verse 13, a sobering statement, and there is no creature hidden from God's sight. <laughs> Not going to hide from Him. No place we can go to hide from Him. Like we said on Wednesday night, why would we want to? We know how good He is, how wonderful He is. Why would we want to hide from Him? But there's no creature hidden from His sight, including the devil. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. That's the sobering part, isn't it? God created man and woman as responsible moral agents. Whether we want to admit it or not, we have responsibility before the living God and we must give account to Him. We give account to Him as believers every day, I hope, in prayer and in confession. And as we look over our life for that day and what we've done for Him, we're going to give account at the judgment seat of Christ and then every lost person is going to give account at the great white throne. And guess who's sitting on the great white throne? The same one who died for him on the cross, the Lord Jesus. But they refused to have him. And then he moves back in verse 14 to 16 of chapter 4. He picks up with where he left off at the end of chapter 2 with this idea of priesthood. You see, he's given us his spirit. He's given us the word of God. 
La Biblia, the Bible. And He's given us His Son as our great high priest. And His role as high priest is to help us make it through. Now there's an interesting picture, word picture, we see in chapter 2, verse 18. When he says there that the Lord Jesus has suffered being tempted, he is able, that word able is dunamis, it's the idea, he has power. He has power, enablement, to do what? To aid those who are being tempted. Well, aid is an accurate translation of the word but just to help us get a better picture of it, hold your finger here and go back to Acts chapter 27. Because in Acts chapter 27, the very same word is used, but it's not translated aid. It's translated undergird. And, and the whole picture is the storm, the Eurocladin, the storm that came down upon Paul and the traveling companions in that ship on their way to Rome, and they encountered that storm. He advised them to take, you know, to wait in port. And they said, no, no, we've got to get there. You know, later he'll say, brethren, you should have listened to me. <laughs> and, and that is a picture of what he says to all the world. Brethren, you need to listen to me. You need to listen to what I tell you about the, the gospel and about Jesus Christ too. Brethren, you should have listened to me and not suffered this great loss. And I think this storm, Luke was with him. And Luke goes in great detail to describe this storm. And you say, well, why is he spending so much time on this? There's so many other things he could be telling us about church planting that he's doing and all of that. Why is he spending so much time on this storm? Well, I think one of the reasons is because it's a picture of the Christian life. And getting through the storms of life and getting into the port, in this case at Malta, and of course they just get in on twigs and sticks pieces of the ship they do suffer loss of everything except their lives which Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3 will be true of those who build their lives with wood, hay and stubble instead of gold, silver and precious stones yes they'll be saved but there'll be nothing else there'll be nothing to show for it and in the midst of this storm verse 14 but not long after a tempestuous headwind arose called Eurocladin. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. The skiff they dragged behind the ship. They're, they're securing it. They're bringing it in by the rope and getting in. And then here in verse 17 is where the word is used. And when they had taken it, the skiff on board, they used cables to do what? to undergird the ship in fearing lest they should run aground on the on Sirtis sands they struck sail and so were driven and so forth this was a procedure that they used it was to keep the ship from breaking up to strengthen the hull and so they you know some volunteer sailor would have to dive in the water and, and get those cables and bring up the other side and they undergirded the ship with cables and that's the word that the writer of Hebrews uses in 2.18. Now you have a picture of what your priest wants to do for you in your time of trial and mine. 
He wants to undergird. He wants to hold you up so you don't break up and fall apart. So you don't suffer loss. So you make it into port with all the cargo on board. And that's what our high priest wants to do for us. But he tells us in chapter 4.14, Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. It's not seeing then we might have or we should have. It would be a good idea if we had one. He doesn't say that. He could have said that. It seemed like a great idea to have one. No, present possession. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have such a high priest. Avail yourself of Him. Go to Him. Seek grace to help in time of need. Don't try to do it on your own. Don't try to go through this life and be a testimony for Christ and suffer the, the difficult circumstances and trials we all encounter on your own because you can't make it. You weren't even designed to. That's why He created the idea of the priest. He says, and you know who that priest is? Makes no doubt about who it is. Jesus. His earthly name, the Son of God. His deity. Jesus, the Son of God. He's passed through the heavens, that is, the first and second, to the third heaven where Paul went and heard things that indescribable. First heavens being our atmosphere, the second heavens being the solar systems and the planets and stars, and then the third heaven, the very throne of God. He says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We were talking about this during the week. I've forgotten who I was speaking with. I said, why does he put it in the negative like that? That's well, a technique. We were looking at that in 1 Corinthians 13 yesterday. It's a technique. When he says it in a negative way, it, it reinforces the positive truth. We do have one who can sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have one who cannot. And that's what he describes in those first four verses of chapter 5, the ironic high priest. And there's a lot we can learn, especially in the book of Numbers, the book of wanderings and journeys, getting from Mount Sinai into the promised land, Great lessons there in that book on making it through our journey as believers in this world. And Aaron was set up as high priest. He didn't take Moses to be high priest. Moses didn't know what it was to suffer in the brickyards. Aaron did. He took the one who could sympathize with the believer's weaknesses who understood their trials, who knew about their sufferings, you see. Would you go to a priest who couldn't sympathize with you in your trial? I wouldn't. Would I be encouraged in prayer and confession to go to a priest that's just going to say, oh, you did that again? When are you going to learn? like some of our brethren sometimes do, and we fail. But our Lord's not like that. He sympathizes. Sympatheo. He, he feels together with us. 
Sometimes we talk about empathizing with one another. And empathy is a great thing. But human beings have no power to enable us. There's no dunamis. There's no power. There's no enablement to help us through. It's great to have someone who's, who identifies with us as a human being. It's a great comfort. But there are limitations there, aren't they? We have one who's passed through the heavens. And He is able to sympathize with us and then give us grace to help in our time of need. And that's what the next verse says. But we must go to Him, He says, right? Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. You realize these these Hebrew Christians, they look back to their forefathers, none of them would have even thought of doing anything like this. Come boldly to the Holy of Holies? No way. You remember what Esther told her uncle Mordecai when when he said you need to go right up to the Persian king and make a request? And what was it? If he put forth the scepter, she'd be spared. But if he didn't, she was done. You didn't just walk right into the throne room of the Persian kings. But the throne of God... As His children, we can do that. You know, I've told this story, I think, here before, but it's a good picture of it. A friend of mine was telling me the story. He was a a big executive CEO with one of the big multinational corporations, and he was going into the big conference room to have a conference call with several people that were board members and Clients, and it was a serious, it was going to be a serious call. So he told his secretary, Don't let anybody interrupt me. This is important. Can't be interrupted. Closes the door, goes in the conference room, and his son comes walking through. His eight year old son comes walking through, and secretary, Oh, no, no, don't go. He opens the door, walks right in, walks right up to daddy. He had, he had a request, you see. And he knew the heart of his daddy. There wasn't anybody in that corporation who could have gotten away with that. But his son came in. And he stopped everything. Yes, son, what can I do for you? That's the kind of relationship that we think sometimes that the, the God of this universe is too busy for me personally too busy with my well they're big problems to us but we think we might think they're little problems to him but when we think of our little problems or our big problems is there anything big in the eyes of God too big for him to handle as he told Jeremiah is my arm too short do I don't have the power anymore to help And so he tells us in chapter 5, but Christ, after he mentions these seven things about Aaron, he was taken from among men. Firstly, he was appointed by God. God's choice by grace. Thirdly, he was appointed as a mediator between the people and God. Fourthly, he was appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. That's the intercession work that the priest did. You'll get to that in chapter 7 with regard to our Lord. Fifth, he was 
appointed to deal gently with the ignorant and wandering. Ignorant is not a bad word, just means agonosis, means lack of knowledge. Can you relate? I can. Sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we don't think what we need to do. And Christ is compassionate with that. And I don't know about you, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. We are prone to wander. And He's been appointed for the wanderers too. But unlike our Lord, sixthly, Aaron had to offer sacrifices for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. That's where he is different from our high priest. And seventh, he was not appointed. He didn't self-appoint on this one. He was appointed by God. It was God's idea. It was God's initiative. No one takes this office to himself. This honor. And so then in verses 6 to 10, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. This is one of the most amazing statements in the Bible. Jesus is God, but he chose not to glorify himself and appoint himself. He waited for the Father to appoint him. That's submission, that's surrender. And so when he asked you and I to submit and surrender, he's done it first. What's so hard about that? I was speaking to somebody a few weeks ago. What's so hard about surrendering and submitting to the Word of God? It, it's, it's sinful rebellion, isn't it? When we won't submit to what the Word says. He did not glorify himself to become high priest, but... It was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He quoted that in chapter 1 from Psalm 2, verse 7, right? But now, remember in chapter 1 the technique he used? And those seven quotations, the first one, you may want to see it for yourself. In verse 5, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2. And then the seventh one, Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand, there in verse 13. Well, now he starts with Psalm 2 and he comes back to Psalm 110, but he doesn't come back to verse 1 of Psalm 110. He comes back to verse 4. You see what he's doing? He's going back to where and then extending the thought a little further. He says, as he also says in another place, you are a priest, how long? Forever. But not according to the order of Aaron, according to the order of Melchizedek. And he's going to develop that person, Melchizedek. I think there are only three verses about him in the whole Bible other than here, way back in Genesis. You realize Melchizedek goes back to 2100, 2000 B.C. He's mentioned there in the time of Abraham. Then he comes up in Psalm 110 in 1000 B.C. in the Psalm of David. And then he comes up here again in Hebrews a thousand years after that. Interesting person. And he, he develops his, his person in chapter 7. Who And now he's going to come back to the Lord Jesus. Who in the days of his flesh. Interesting way to phrase it. To remind us he became man, isn't he? He's reminding us. 
He's God, but He became man. And in the days of His flesh, when He had offered up... What He had just told them to do in verse 16 of chapter 4? To go to the throne of grace and pray, supplicate. Now He's saying, your high priest did that when He was on earth. Did you know that, He says? When He had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears... If you think that God can't relate to you in your trials and sufferings, look at this verse. Look at our Lord in Gethsemane. Not just mild, but vehement cries and tears. And He was praying to Him who was able to save Him from death and was heard because of His godly fear. He boldly approached the throne of grace. Even though he's God, he did that in the days of his flesh. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to everybody? No, just to all who obey him. And what's the obedience? The first obedience that he requests believe in me, trust in in me trust my sacrifice on Calvary for your sin called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek having been perfected he became the author that verse many years ago Roman Catholic priest in northern Louisiana Sandy Carson tells in his testimony he read that verse and he realized, he said, he became the author of eternal salvation. And here I am offering him up again and again in the Mass. And he decided, you know, I can't do that. You're supposed to have a Mass that night. He said, I can't do this. I can't continue to do this. He's been perfected already. The sacrifice is complete. So he wrote to his bishop and said, I, I'm struggling with this. Uh, I, I'm going to have to resign. Bishop said, no, you just need more time. Take a sabbatical for about six weeks. Think it through and then come back. You're just working through some difficulties. Well, he said, no, no, no. This is, I'm not coming back. The Lord Jesus has been perfected already on the cross. And he continued on to grow as a Christian. What about you? You know, sometimes we get just so busy in this life, right? We get occupied and preoccupied. There's a story I heard years ago on the radio of a, a single mom. We're talking about Mother's Day. Single mom. You know, you, you may have had a wonderful mother as the example brother shared with us had and that can be such an encouragement but don't think that everybody especially in the world we live in don't assume everybody had a wonderful mother you say you can't be you can't be serious you can't be serious we know that the men leaving their children and, and many no the, the women are doing it too awful things we're hearing about that women are doing to their children but one of the things is just being so busy with work 
and making money, they forget their children. And this this mother, she she was busy, and her son Billy, he he was around eight or nine years old. He'd come come home from school and and show her something he made. I don't have time for that. I've got to work on getting ready for tomorrow's meeting. Don't bother me. And he'd come home and want to tell her about things he learned. No, don't. I don't have time. Come back. We'll, we'll talk about it later. And one day she came home from work. And as she pulled up the driveway, Billy was across the street with his friends and he saw her pull up. And you know how impulsive children can be. He was just so excited. He had just been given an award that day at school and he wanted to show her. And he just took off and ran across the street and he didn't see the car coming. And the car hit him. And as he sat or laid there in the hospital bed and his mother sitting by his side, he was in a coma. She said to him, I got time for you now. Don't die. I got time for you now, Billy. Show me what you wanted to show me. Tell me about it. He's in a coma. He can't talk. She said, I've got all the time in the world. When it comes to people, I've got all the time in the world for you now, but it's too late. He died. So mothers, parents, grandmothers, stay focused on the real things. People. Thankful for the number of children that are here. I want to see that go on. I don't want to see it continue. I don't want to see any of them discouraged or hurt by any big person, adults. They call them big people. I want to see the number double in a year. How's that? Right, Glenn? I, I said, go for it, brother. I, I like that. It's the enthusiasm for the children. They're the next generation. And we've got a high priest. You know what he said about the children? Don't get in their way when they're coming to me. They're going to come to me. They're inclined that way already. I made them like that. Don't get in their way. Bring them to me. <coughs> so, Father, we thank you, O oh Lord, that you've made so many provisions for us. We have a priest who became man so he can sympathize with us. He understands our weaknesses, though he was completely without sin or weakness himself. Now, as the omniscient God, He would understand these things anyway, but to help our faith, He came down and experienced these things so we might relate better to His priesthood. And Lord, we need Your grace every day. Help us put aside that pride or the thing that easily stumbles us and help us keep coming to You and delight in coming to You because we know You want to hear from us. Thank you for the mothers as well, Lord. Pray you'll give them strength. There's so many things that can distract them from the privileged occupation and primary occupation you've given to them if they have children. 
Help them, O oh Lord. Help all of us live for you. And for your glory's sake, we pray in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.